Welcome to the Light Gate. We are coming to you from the beautiful town of New Orleans, Louisiana, at 107.7 FM, and from on the United Public Radio Network. And we're also on the United uh, UFO Paranormal Radio Network at 105.3 FM. We're having a really cool night. We're on Roku. We're on YouTube. We're on Facebook. We're on a whole bunch of different things. If you can't find us one way, try us another. And I just want to hand it over to Preston because I'm very excited about this show tonight. It's really good. (laughs) Thanks, Dolly. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us tonight on The Light Gate, episode 25. I am your host, Preston Dennett, author, researcher, and my lovely co-host is, of course, experiencer Dolly Saffron, subject of the book, Symmetry. We've got an awesome, awesome guest tonight, so I'm super excited. And I just want to give a shout out to all you guys in chat. Really appreciate the super chats, you guys. Thanks so much. So, yeah, thank you, Dana Matthews and... Oh my goodness, I'm just so grateful. Um, so here's Jenny, hello Jenny. And here's Dana, hello Dana. Thank you so much for joining us, Scuba Maru and David. You guys are so awesome, always showing up every week. We truly, truly appreciate it. So there's hi to Janice, hello Susan. Susan's one of the people who I interviewed. She was a previous guest on the show. Hi, Nancy. Thanks for joining us. Got a nice big crowd today. I'm not surprised. Thank you, Namaste, for the wonderful donation. It really does help quite a bit. And who else do we have here? Louise. Goodness, we've got a lot of people. Kathleen and... Ruth uh, Kleiber. Hi, Ruth. (laughs) And Renee is in here tonight. Awesome. Oh, Red Peanut. Hello, Red Peanut. Thanks for joining us. You guys make this show so much fun. Hi, Michael. Thank you very much. Lunar Dove. Oh, wow. We got a big crowd tonight. I think we've got a really good guest. So maybe that is why. Thank you, Dana, very much for the super chat. Truly appreciated. And again, thank you, Terry D. So let me just get to our guest because I could say hi to you guys all night long. And I will. Kayleen White. (laughs) Hello. Thank you, Jenny, so much. You guys are very, very kind. But let's just get started because we do have an amazing guest tonight. Someone I've known about for quite a while because doing research in this field, you're going to hear about Steve Boucher. And that is our guest tonight. We're super happy to welcome him to the show. He's an AutoCAD draftsman who lives in St. Catharines, Ontario. He's also a very accomplished musician, a singer, and a fine artist. Wait till you see some of the drawings he's done of his ETs. They're amazing. Now, Steve has had experiences with non-terrestrial beings since he was just a little baby. Uh, Now, most of his experiences were buried in his subconscious mind for many years, but early on, he began to have brief flashes of conscious memory, but only after walking into a bookstore, and instead of buying one of Carlos Castaneda's books, The Eagle's Gift, I love Carlos Castaneda's books, by the way, but I actually got much more shifted into UFOs, and he ended up picking up Bud Hopkins' book, Missing Time, instead. Felt somewhat compelled to, actually, as he writes in his amazing book. 
So after reading the book, Steve wrote to Bud Hopkins and told him about the memories he was having, because of course, in the back of the book, Bud invited anyone to write to him. And Bud kindly contacted Steve and invited him to come to New York, stay at his art studio in Manhattan for a week. And Steve accepted the invitation. It was during that amazing eventful week in 1984 that he underwent three hypnosis sessions and would later undergo more, which revealed that he had had repeated visitations from short gray-skinned beings, approximately four feet high with large eyes and large heads, a description we've heard many times. So after that, Steve returned to Canada, went to a UFO symposium in Toronto, and met up with a UFO group, group called QFORN. That's the Canadian UFO Research Network. They've done lots of amazing work in this field. Now, they've since disbanded, but at the time they took over the case and did a thorough investigation of Steve's experiences. And they scheduled several more hypnosis sessions for him. And they published the results in the QFORN journal. Now, Steve's case was also reported in the MUFON Journal, the Mutual UFO Network, and the Flying Saucer Review. So these are leading publications. But to protect his identity at the time, Q Forn gave him a pseudonym, Jack. However, Steve has decided that now is the time to reveal his identity to the public because he feels, like many contactees, I think, including you, Dolly, that the story needs to be told. Now, Steve has remembered many more details and more experiences have surfaced since the initial investigation took place. Uh, so we have a lot to talk about. I know Steve has an amazing connection to nature and animals. His artwork is absolutely incredible. We do have his links in the description. But Steve did write a book called Beyond the Ex Extraterrestrial Firewall, which by the way, does have a foreword by Canadian researcher Grant Cameron, who I really respect as a researcher. He's done really great work. But what's so cool about Steve's book, Beyond the Extraterrestrial Firewall, is it's quite rare for its kind. There are not a lot of books out there written by experiencers who've you know, been there, done that. So that alone makes this book really special, but it's done very well. It's still relatively new, published a couple of years ago. It's got over four stars on Amazon, hundreds of reviews, and an amazing book. So I'm super excited to have Steve join us tonight, and I will just bring him in. There he is. <laughs> Hi, Steve. Welcome. Thanks so much again for joining us. It's a real honor. I'm super excited. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I first heard about you, Steve, when I was writing a book, um, not from here, volume four, not too long ago. And I was researching cases of extraterrestrial hitchhikers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I ran across a couple of cases from RD6 Killer Clark, who had a one case in South America, another in New Mexico. I know Brad Steiger had a couple of cases. Uh, I found another one in California. And of course, doing in-depth research, I came across your case. 
under a pseudonym, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, but I know that's one of your major encounters. So I'm super excited to talk about that. But I mean, there's lots to talk about. I thought we would just start with how it all began for you, you know, as a, a young kid and how this came to be such a big part of your life. Well, uh, there's a couple of places I could begin, but uh, um, where I first discovered that I was a contactee was uh, when I bought Bud Hopkins' book, Missing Time. And uh, I read the book and um, I found that uh, some of the uh, cases in it were uh, triggering some memories in me. And uh, I wasn't sure if if they were memories or if this was like a dream. And um, one of those memories involved my dad, uh, where oh. I, I had had an encounter with my dad. And um, so at the end of the book, uh, as you said it, uh, there was a paragraph from Bud Hopkins that said, if you want more research done and you feel you've had uh, some experiences, you can contact me here. So I thought, well, I'm going to ask my dad if he remembers uh, any of the incident that I'm remembering that I had with him. I was remembering these fragments consciously. So uh, I thought if he verifies this and he remembers these things, then I know it's not a dream and I'll write to Bud Hopkins. And so I went into the living room. My dad was sitting there on the couch reading the paper, and I asked him if we could talk. And he said, yeah. And so I started to describe the experience that I remember having with him. And um, I guess I was about four years old when, when I had this experience. And my dad and I were coming back from somewhere at night. I'm not sure where we were coming back from. And um, uh, it was dark. And it was kind of a, a dirt, dirt road or a gravel road, I think. And uh, in those days, the cars used to have um, like a shelf behind the the back seat and when I was a kid I used to climb up on the, on that shelf and lay down on it and I'd look up through the back window and I could see the stars you know so uh, I was looking up there and watching the stars and I saw one was moving and it seemed to be following us and uh, as I was watching it I felt like it, it was trying to communicate with me and uh, wow. it was getting closer and getting bigger. And when it finally got so close that I started to wonder about it and I climbed over into the front seat and I said to my dad, what's that light out there? And he said, what light? And I said, that light. And I pointed uh, out the window to, uh, by this time it was, just above the treetops and it was tracking our speed and following us. And uh, when my dad uh, turned and looked and he saw it, 
we went into like a panic mode. And um, I said, what is it? And he said, shut up, leave me alone. And he was, uh, he, I could see he was visibly uh, shaken by it because he normally wouldn't talk to me like that. And uh, so I, uh, I was sitting there watching and he was, he had his foot on the accelerator and he was trying to outrun it, but you can't outrun these beings. <laughs> Not easily. No. <laughs> so it shot ahead of us and started coming down in the road in front of us. And um, we had to stop the car. And uh, he had the headlights on it, but it lit up the whole road. Like, you know, it's almost like daylight. And um, he uh, he managed to gain his composure. And he turned to me and he said, I don't know what these people want, but he says, I want you to stay here in the car and don't get out. Don't look over the dashboard. Just stay here and wait for me. And I'll be back as soon as I can get back. And so he got out. And uh, there were two beings that had got out of the craft. And they were standing facing us. And um, my dad said, I'm going to go and see what they want. And so he started walking towards them. And um, the one being that... Uh, seemed to stand out more than the other. I think he was uh, probably the, the leader. And so my dad went and he positioned himself in front of this being so that the being couldn't see me in the car. Wow. But the other being had a clear view of me. So, you know, um, my dad was standing there talking to this, this uh, gray being. It, it was the gray being with the large heads and the big black eyes. And uh, uh, to me, it didn't seem that strange because when you're four years old, everything is new to you, you know? And so it, it didn't bother me that much. And I wondered if I knew these guys, you know, because I don't know if I had a, like a memory of, seeing them before but i had had a previous experience with these beings when i was about two and uh, so i was looking over the dashboard at them and trying to figure out who they were and if i knew them and uh, um, i disobeyed my dad <laughs> got out of the the car through the driver's side and i started walking up to him and uh, he was talking to the being and he put his hand behind his back like this and he made this motion like get back you know and um, I you can get away with a lot when you're only four years old you know so I came up behind him slowly and uh, the being that was talking to him just suddenly uh, he suddenly moved his head like like that looked over my dad's shoulder and he saw me and my dad knew he saw me and uh, I could hear his voice in my head. I, 
couldn't hear him audibly, but I could hear his thoughts. And he was saying to my dad, you seem to be concerned about the child. And my dad said, well, yeah, he said, that's my son. And kind of laughed uh, sheepishly. He used to do that when he was nervous. And then he turned to me and he said to me, I told you to stay in the car. <laughs> Go back and get back in the car and stay there. And I'll be back as soon as I can. And uh, I said, but I want to see, you know. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and uh, so the being said to my dad, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, would you like my crewmate to take him back to the vehicle for you? And uh, I don't know if he used that word, but I understood what he meant. And um, my dad said, no, he said, I have to go. Uh, my wife is waiting for us at home. She's going to wonder where we are. And he said, I should get going. And the being looked at the other being and he nodded his head like that. And the other being immediately came over and took me by the hand and walked me back to the car. And mm -hmm. my dad was just standing there kind of dumbfounded in the road watching this. And I could see he wasn't comfortable with this idea at all. But anyway, the being brought me back to the car and uh, I got in and he got in with me and sat in the driver's seat. And uh, he started talking to me uh, telepathically. And, and I glanced through the front window and I noticed that my dad and the other being had disappeared. So I assumed that they went inside the ship, you know. And so this being that was sitting with me, he, uh, he put his hands on the steering wheel and he said, what does this do? And I said, well, that makes the car go this way or that way, whichever way you turn it. <laughs> and uh, then he looked down at the floor at the pedals and he said, what do these do? And I said, well, one makes it stop and the other one makes it go. And... Um, he kept asking me about the car, all these questions about, and he noticed the radio. And so he pointed to the radio and he said, what is that? And I said, well, that's the radio. Um, I said, you hear people talking and you hear music on it. And he said, oh, I see. Can you talk back to them on it? And I said, no, it doesn't work that way. So, okay. And, um, he kept me busy and basically what he was doing was uh, babysitting while my dad was being abducted. <laughs> you know? So uh, uh, after a little while, my dad came back out. Well, the, the being said to me, uh, what do you do during the day? Do you go to school? And, and I said, no, that, that'll be next year. Uh, and I know that I would have started school at five. So that's how I know I was four at the time. And um, so uh, uh, my dad came back. He got out of the, the ship with the other being. And they were talking in the road. And I was enjoying the company of this uh, 
grave that was uh, sitting in the car with me uh, because he was paying attention to me. And for a four-year-old, that's important, you know. Uh, and um, so anyway, he said to me, I'm going to have to go. Uh, and I said, well, can't you stay a little bit longer? And uh, he, he said, well, maybe for a minute. And, and then uh, the being that was standing in the road with my dad nodded his head again like that. And he said, now I do have to go. So he got out and he passed my dad in the road coming back to the car. And uh, my dad got in and uh, he looked uh, he was very quiet and he looked like there was a lot of stuff on his mind. And um, so when I started describing these events to my dad in the living room uh, at home, uh, I asked him if he remembered any of this. And he said, yes. He said, I remember going like that to for you to get back into the car. He said, I remember that. And uh, so I knew then that uh, it wasn't a dream, that this really did happen to us. Yeah. I actually have a picture that you gave to me I want to pull up. Yeah. So is, is that about this age you were? That's about the age I was and uh, with my dad there. And uh, uh, wow. we had a little oh, yeah. 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 And uh, so, so did he ever tell you what he remembered or did he just remember part of it or? Well, he remembered everything I told him up to that point, but there's something he didn't remember is that once we started the car and uh, the ship moved off, we could see it going over the trees and it was leaving and the car started and we started to go home and then a second uh, incident happened where the, the ship came back a second time and it did the same thing. It came down in the road in front of us. And uh, I remember my dad saying, oh, what the hell did they want now? You know, <laughs> and only one being got out this time and he came over to the car and he motioned for my dad to roll the window down. In those days, they used a crank. There were no uh, electric windows. And um, so my dad rolled the window down a little bit. He, he said, what is it? And the being said, you forgot these. And he handed my dad his, his glasses. Oh, wow. He'd forgotten his, his eyeglasses on the ship. <laughs> wow. And... Uh, I know from experience with these beings, they're very meticulous about making sure that you go back with everything you came with. You know, they don't want anything uh, left behind or, you know, have you wondering where something is. So uh, they gave my dad his glasses back and then we watched them leave again. And, and uh, they just, they didn't take off really fast. They just kind of coasted over the trees. And so my dad thanked them and he put his glasses on. We went home. And that's the part, the second part there that my dad doesn't remember. He, hmm. he didn't remember it. 
And um, when QFORN worked on my case, I told them about this. And they came and interviewed my dad. And uh, uh, they used to come on the weekends and visit with me and with my dad and um, talk to him. So anyway, uh, that was one of the incidents I had when I was a child. I, I won't go into the earlier ones uh, right now. Uh, um, that 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 experience is that something you always remembered, or did that was that something that came back to you as an adult? That came back to me as an adult. Oh, wow! All right. It was a conscious recollection, and it was triggered by Bud's book, Missing Time. That's what made me remember it. Amazing. And it came back in fragments. Uh, um, so. Anyway, um, when I went to see Bud Hopkins, uh, uh, he answered my, my letter and he called the house and he got my mother on the phone and he told her who he was and everything. And when she told me Bud Hopkins is on the phone, I almost fell off my chair because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't expect him to call me personally. I thought he was going to maybe get uh someone else to do it you know and so i talked to him on the phone and he wanted me to come to uh, manhattan to his studio there he said i strongly suspect that you and your father uh have had a ufo encounter and uh, he said i was wondering if you could both come to uh, manhattan and I asked my dad, and he said, no, I can't go. He said, I, I have to work. But mm -hmm. I had a, a vacation coming up from my job. And uh, so uh, my mother agreed that it was OK if I go. And uh, so I went. And I took what they called the sky bus. I it was a smaller plane, uh, kind of like a I think it was a DC-10 or something smaller than, than the normal passenger jets. And um, I met a guy at the airport there. His name was uh, Ted Blocher, and he was one of Bud's best friends. And uh, I know about Ted. He's done amazing work. Yeah, he uh, wrote a book with Isabel Davis, uh, about the uh, Hopkinsville incident called Incident at Kelly. Yep. And, um, I've got it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, so uh, he was holding up a bristleboard sign that said Bud Hopkins on it. So that's how I recognized him. <laughs> and uh, I went to, uh, uh, went up to him and he took me to Bud Hopkins studio in Manhattan. He has a an art studio there. Uh, he was an internationally uh, famous artist. And um, uh, the studio was fully equipped like an apartment. It had a, a bedroom and a, a kitchenette. And um, the rest of it was pretty much open space with a lot of Bud's paintings hanging on the wall. Um, and uh, the lady that used to do his uh, hypnosis sessions for him uh, that did the ones in his book missing time her name was dr aphrodite clamar 
and um, he had scheduled uh, uh, a couple of um, hypnosis sessions with her. He scheduled three, and he uh, scheduled me to go and see a behavioral therapist uh, that was also uh, working on some of his cases, but she didn't know what we had in common. And it was, uh, he gave her this job of trying to figure out what these people all have in common. And he was bringing her abductees and uh, he didn't tell her and, uh, what we were. And so anyway, yeah, this is, that's uh, Bud Hopkins on the left and Ted Blocher on the right. Uh, that's in Bud's studio, and you can see some of his kind of abstract paintings on the wall behind him. Um, cool. yep. Yeah. So uh, I went to two of the uh, hypnosis sessions with Dr. Clamar, and uh, they recorded them on cassette. And um, the third one, she wasn't able to do. She was sick that day. But she knew that Bud had enough experience that he could do the hypnosis session himself. So um, he did the third session with me. But um, the first two sessions, uh, she, know, she knew how to position the microphone and everything to uh, get it all on tape. Bud didn't uh, have the mic in the right place, and it, the third tape came out to be just kind of a a blur. It wasn't uh, it wasn't clear, so I couldn't use it. But uh, I uh, I came back from there with uh, two cassette tapes, and I transcribed them when I got home. I wrote it all down. And uh, the transcriptions of those tapes are in my book. And uh, I'm glad I did that. I'm glad I had the foresight to do that because the tapes vanished. I have no idea where they went. And uh, That's weird. I've yeah. heard that before. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, QFORN, uh, the Canadian UFO Research Network, uh, took over my case after that. Uh, uh, they're based in Toronto. And there was a UFO symposium going on in Toronto at the time with um, uh, a lot of guest speakers. And one of them was J. Allen Hynek. And I was standing about 20 feet away from him. And uh, I wish now I'm kicking myself that I didn't go and shake his hand and introduce myself but uh, he was standing here talking to somebody else and he had the the pipe with him you know <laughs> that pipe he used to smoke all the time <laughs> so anyway uh, they um Q-Forn fixed me up with uh, a hypnotist in toronto who took over uh, my case and she didn't really understand what she was doing she uh, she'd never worked with an abductee before. She's only worked with people that were trying to quit smoking or lose weight, you know. 
so she didn't really know what uh, what to do with me, you know. And oh, wow. uh, uh, Harry Tokars, one of the uh, members of QFORN, uh, he suggested that she call Dr. Leo Sprinkle at the University of Wyoming. And uh, he's worked with hundreds of cases of the abductees and contactees. So, so she phoned him uh, and we were all sitting there in the office at the time and he basically walked her through it uh, because they wanted to take me into a deeper state of hypnosis than she normally deals with. Like he wanted her to take me into uh, what they call the somnambulistic state. I guess it's a deeper form of hypnosis. And uh, she was kind of afraid to go there because uh, most hypnotists don't like to work in that uh, in that state because uh, weird things happen. <laughs> 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 so anyway, he talked her through it and she did it. And she brought me into this somnambulistic state. And uh, I started recalling a lot of incidents that had happened to me up to, up to that point. And uh, one of them, um, the one that I'm most known for is the one I call the van incident, but it involved a band that I was in when I was about 17, 17 or 18. Okay, now before we get to that one, yeah. I'm wondering what is it like to go under hypnosis? Because there's a lot of controversy surrounding it. And was it just, I mean, how did, it, how was it for you? Did you? Uh, I was quite comfortable with it. Uh, uh, it's more like just a deep state of relaxation. And you're just listening to this person talking to you in a, a low voice, uh, you know. I actually have a picture of you coming out of hypnosis for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I looked like back then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you still look great. <laughs> well, anyway. Uh, so, and, yeah. and so before you get to that other experience, because you had an experience at age two, you said? Yes, I had one at age two. That was the first one that I remember. Um, I'm curious about that one. Okay. Um, well, I had this little cart that my mother used to put me in when I was two. It was uh, like a little metal cart. They, they weren't made of plastic like they are now. Back then they were made of metal and they had like a, it had a metal tray on the front of it. And you. A tailor taught. Yeah. yeah, I had one. It's called Taylor Tots. Yeah, <laughs> and you'd move it with yeah. your feet, kind of like the flint. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> oh, I remember those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it had wheels on it, and yeah. my mother used to put me in this thing in, out in the backyard, and uh, she always told me, you know, stay around here, don't go on the road, don't go in front of the building, just stay here where I can see you. And um, uh, I had my puppy with me, uh, you know, sitting beside me. I don't know if I sent you a picture of that. 
I think there might be one. I don't think I have it. Hopefully no? Check, no. Okay. Well, anyway, it's in my book. And um, uh, I was out on this uh, little cart, or tailor tot, you call it? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it and, starts out uh, as a stroller, and yeah. then they take the thing off it, and it becomes uh, what you push it around. Yeah. With your feet. Yeah. Tailor tot. I have pictures yeah. of me in one. <laughs> So anyway, I was out in the backyard on this thing, uh, and I heard my voice, or I heard my name being called. And I looked around, I couldn't see anybody around, and I said, uh, who is this? And they said, uh, look at the bushes. Do you see the bushes? And I said, yeah. And they said, we're on the other side of the bushes, and we want you to come over here. And um, so I was used to just being on this gravel road and I wasn't used to going across the grass, but I managed to make my way across there. And I, I came around the corner uh, and hiding behind the bushes, there was a, a saucer shaped craft sitting on the ground again. And um, uh, there were two beings there and um, one of them called me by name. He said, Stevie, we've been waiting for you. And he came over to me and uh, picked me up, and lifted me out of this, uh, this little uh, uh, stroller I was in. And uh, they brought me on onto the ship. And um, once they had me on the ship, the other being laid down on like a gurney sort of thing. And they laid me on a gurney kind of thing. And uh, I think they attached wires to me. You know, it's hard to remember because I was only two, but I think they had me wired up and uh, they gave me an implant. Mm, yeah. Uh, Where I, was it? Where was the implant? Well, I'm not really sure, but I had one behind my left ear. Yeah. You're left-handed, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Why do they put them behind the left ear, Dolly? Seems well, to they're behind the right ear if you're left-handed, but they never really realize we're left-handed until they realize we're left-handed, and they automatically put it behind the left ear, and they'll switch it later on when they realize that you're a lefty because it's too easy for me to manipulate it and pull it out which I did to mine. So, yeah. I'm just curious because I often hear people saying they get, they get them in their ear. Mm -hmm. Right behind the back of your ear. Yeah. Mm. Right right in the fold of it where it comes into your head. Well, wow. this implant, I don't know if they gave me one or they gave me two. But um, uh, after they'd done that, uh, well, they said, uh, I said, what are you doing? And they said, well, he said, my friend here is going to get part of you, and you're going to get part of him. Oh, wow. And I said, no, I want to keep all my parts. I started, <laughs> you know. And uh, so anyway, uh, he said, it's okay. It's not going to hurt. You won't feel anything. And so afterwards, he, he brought me back out of the ship and put me back in this the little cart. And um, 
I could hear my mother calling my name. And so I came back around the side of the bush so she could see me. And when she saw me, she started shaking her finger at me. And uh, she said, I told you to stay in the yard here where I can see you. Oh, wow. And uh, she said, I was looking all over for you. I was worried that you'd gone on the road or something. And, and uh, she said, if you do that again, I'm going to take the fly swatter to you. <laughs> and, uh, I was terrified of the dreaded fly swatter. They used, you know, she used to whack me with this thing when I misbehaved and it stopped. Oh, nice. oh, and, uh, so yeah. anyway, she so, picked so me you up. were actually missing then for a period of time there. I was missing for a little while, yeah. Oh, wow. And um, she picked me up and took me in the house and she put me on the floor in the living room. <laughs> and I had these blocks on the floor that were kind of like uh, uh, they had letters of the alphabet and numbers yeah. and stuff like yeah. that on them. They were wooden blocks, you know, pre-Sesame Street education, I guess. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I was playing with these blocks on the floor and I heard the voice calling me again. And I looked around and I said, where are you? And they said, go over to the couch, climb up on the couch and climb into the window behind the couch. There was like a recessed window yeah. there. And so I, I crawled into that window and I was looking around and I said, where are you? And they said, look up. And I looked up in the sky through the window and I saw this bright light go across the sky. And uh, I was very surprised, you know, and I said, was that you? And they said, yes. And I said, can you do it again? And they said, we'll do it again. We'll tell you when to look. And they said, okay, look now. And I looked and again, the same light went across the sky. And uh, I said, how can you hear me? And they said, because we can hear what you hear and we can see what you see. And I said, uh, I said, can I see what you see and hear what you hear? And they said, not now, but perhaps later. And uh, I said, what do you look like? I'd already forgotten the first incident. Wow. And uh, they said, look over at the doorway between the, the chair and, and the couch. And I looked over at the doorway and I started seeing uh, what looked like a holographic form of one of these gray aliens appearing in the doorway and I could see through them and I said is that what you look like and they said yes and I said can you come here and they said not today but later on and uh, I have like a, a little model here of uh, what they look mm. like, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah, I made this little model. So anyway. Um, they have blue skin then? Is that? No, it's uh, they had gray skin, but uh, mm. for some reason the camera's making it look blue. Oh, okay. Yeah. In a blue jumpsuit? 
blue jumpsuit, yeah, and uh, it had an insignia on the chest, uh, on one side of the chest. And uh, I didn't put it on the model because it was too small to get on there. But anyway, um, uh, after I saw what he looked like, I said, uh, I said uh, how can you see what I see and hear what I hear? And he said, uh, well, it's hard to explain, but um, I said, there was an expression my mother used to use when I got confused. She said, you, you've got your wires crossed. And I said, uh, does it, do I have my wires crossed? And he said, yes, that's a good way to explain it. <laughs> I guess I let him off the hook, you know. <laughs> Cute. <laughs> yeah. I get it. It's kind of like, yeah, yeah communicating because you're yeah. connected. So, um, uh, after, after that incident happened, I got down off the couch and I was running into the kitchen to tell my mother and she had the, the vacuum cleaner out and the hose was across the doorway where I was going and I tripped on it and fell and I skinned my knee and I started to cry and I went into the kitchen and my mom put a bandaid on it and uh, when that happened, it made me forget what I was going in there for. I'd forgotten. Oh, wow. Yeah, someone's in chat saying, imagine trying to explain to your mom <laughs> you were missing yeah. because you were on a UFO. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know what a UFO was then. But uh, I'll tell you, though, those beings can communicate with children better than the parents can because... Uh, when you're talking to your mother at two years old or whatever, and you can't speak yet, all you can do is kind of point and whine, you know, or, or cry. They know exactly what you want and what you're thinking. They get right into your head. And so it's like a, a more advanced conversation uh, because they know exactly what you're thinking. Wow. That's very yeah. cool. Yeah, you're wide open to yourself at that age. Your um, pineal gland is operating, you know, properly. Very mm -hmm. psychic at that age also. And so your higher consciousness, who you really are, is able to speak like an adult because you're ancient. Right. Actually, you know, and you can have better conversations at that age with them. Yep. Yeah, because you're not hindered by words. Right. So Neural Channels is asking, can you describe the symbol on the chest? Um, yeah, it. Uh, I'm not sure exactly uh, uh, what it looked like, but the way I remember it, it was like a chevron uh, with three stars. And um, that came out in a hypnosis session with Q-Forn. Um, they asked me about that as well. They said, focus in on the, uh, the symbol on their chest. And they said, uh, zoom in on it 
And he said, because I'm going to ask you to draw it later. And so I zoomed in on it, but I'm not sure if I had it accurate or if my brain was um, extrapolating what I thought it looked like, you know. So I can't really say exactly for sure, but I drew what I remembered. And uh, that's also in my book. Yeah, I think actually you sent me a picture of that. Let me see if I can pull that up. Oh, there it is. Yeah. I think this is what you're talking about. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> On there, it looked like that. And there was sort of a, what looked like a, a ball or a globe with um, rings around it, like Saturn in the center of it. Wow. And that was the best I could draw of it at uh, that small scale. So is this what the gray looked like then? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that was an AI gray. You, later you, on. Yeah, AIs. They're on, um, autonomous individual. That, that they're, they're biological AI. In other words, they're not human like you and I or yeah. biological, they don't have sentience as uh, a being like we do. We have a spirit, they have none. And uh, they're the workers for them. And the outfit that you're describing denotes it, that's AI. Well, later on uh, in the incident that I had with my band, yeah, I felt that these beings were uh, had spirits, they had a, a soul. And I don't, so I don't know if, if that's what oh, they were, or if they were real yeah. beings, but. Uh, if he was under three feet, in other words, they're about, they average about three feet tall or under. They're very slender, very skinny like that. You're drawing him perfectly. Yeah. Um, that's AI. Okay. Anything over three feet is uh, a real gray and mm -hmm. they can range from five feet uh, and the taller grades go over six feet, sometimes seven and a half, eight feet tall. Oh, okay. so, yeah. So anyway, uh, uh, in the interest of time, I should probably go into the experience with my band. That's, yeah, I'm super curious about that, that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was uh, about 17. I know I was underage and we were playing in the bars and they never questioned me, you know. The other guys were older than I was. Uh, so, um, yeah, that's my band. Uh, it was called Harmony Grove. Um, Where did you guy, in, in Canada? Yeah. The guy yeah. in the middle there replaced our bass player. He's not one of the ones that had the experience uh, with us. The bass player... Uh, uh, left and this guy replaced him and I'm on the left there wearing the satin shirt yeah. and I'm a little bit chubby there <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but anyway uh, this is a picture of a picture so that's why it's a little bit uh, distorted uh, all right yeah uh, the guitarist, which is the guy on the far right, um, 
he uh, passed away uh, a while ago. Sorry. Uh, and the only one still alive is uh, the drummer, which is sitting in front there. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, um, we were playing at a bar in Niagara-on-the-Lake called the American Hotel. And uh, we just finished a gig, and it, it was late. It was around 1.30 or so. We were packing up our stuff. And uh, the drummer, uh, I'll call him Sam, he uh, came over to us when we were packing our stuff up, and he said, a friend of mine um, has invited us to a party in Vineland, I believe it was. Jordan or Vineland, they're very close together. And uh, he said um, he was hoping we could go there and maybe play one set. Uh, but if you guys are too tired, I understand. He said, how do you feel about that? And we said, yeah, okay, we'll go. And uh, we were all hyped up, ready to, to go. So uh, we drove to Vineland. And uh, the guitarist's girlfriend uh, knew the woman that had this house. And um, so we went there and uh, we decided to play one set for them. And there was um, one of those telescopic pole lamps was in the living room and uh, we had to take it down to put the drums in in that spot. And later on when Q4 and, uh, uh, investigated the case, we went back to that house and uh, I had drawn a floor plan of it and it matched the floor plan perfectly. And we even found the divot in the ceiling from the pole lamp, you know. So anyway, um, we played a set and there was a guy there that uh, nobody seemed to be bothering with him. And um, uh, at the end of the, the set, he, he asked me, he said, are you guys going to St. Catharines? And we said, yeah. And he said, would you mind giving me a lift? He said, I, I was supposed to meet a friend of mine here and he never showed up and he was my ride home. And so nobody here knew me and they just kept feeding me drinks. And he says, I'm a little bit tipsy right now. He was half in the bag, you know. But anyway, uh, <laughs> we packed all this, the equipment up and put it in the, in the van. And the guitarist, I'll call him Tom, he, uh, he was driving. So this guy asked him, can you give me a lift to St. Catharines? And he said, well, you've kind of been drinking a bit, haven't you? And he said, yeah, but he's, he said, well, I'll give you a lift anyway. He said, but you'll have to sit on the floor with the equipment. And uh, it was a cargo van with just one side window. And we'd packed all the drums in there and the, guitars and the amps and and uh, 
So we left the party and there was uh, Tom, the guitarist, Sam, the drummer, the bass player, I'll call him Calvin, and uh, the guitarist's girlfriend, I'll call her Anne-Marie, and the, uh, uh, the hitchhiker. And so, and myself. And we were all packed into the van there, uh, driving uh, to St. Catharines. And we went to get onto the Queen Elizabeth Highway, but the gate was closed. Uh, so we couldn't get on there. And we thought, well, no problem. We'll just take the service road down to the next junction and we'll get on it there. And uh, so that's what we planned. And when we started going down the service road, all of a sudden, uh, while we were talking in the back of the van and uh, uh, the hitchhiker, I found out later, his name was Alex. And he was trying to pick up Anne-Marie, excuse me. He was trying to pick up Anne-Marie, but she was dating the guitarist, you know. And um, uh, all of a sudden, the guitarist, he stopped the van. And we said, why are you stopping? And he says, well, you better take a look at this because you're not going to believe me. So we looked over the seat. And in the parking lot of uh, a restaurant that it's now called the Lake House, it's been through several owners, uh, in this big expanse of the parking lot, there was a saucer-shaped craft sitting on the ground and it had lights around it. There was uh, red lights around the perimeter and it had recessed portholes above that also going around the perimeter. And on the bottom it had what looked like uh, little searchlights different colored searchlights uh, panning back and forth over over the parking lot. And uh, we were a bit of a ways away from it. And he said, what do you think? And I said, it looks like maybe it's a prop for a movie. And uh, we were trying to come up with ideas of what this thing was. And the, uh, the drummer said, well, why would they be making a movie at four in the morning? By this time, it was about four o'clock in the morning. And um, so the guitarist says, well, I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to go buy that thing. So he said, I think I'll turn around and we'll, we'll take the back road home instead of the highway. And uh, so we all agreed that we thought that was a better idea. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, he started moving, turning into the parking lot to turn the, the van around. And uh, suddenly the, um, the van started moving and he wasn't, he wasn't driving it. I said, I thought you were going to turn around. <laughs> well, look, he says, I've got the wheel cranked over as far as it'll go, and we're not turning. 
And I said, well, put the brake on. He says, I'm trying. He says, I've been pumping the brake and nothing's happening. And at that point, I realized that I couldn't feel the uh, the little bumps in the road that you'd normally feel when you're driving. So we were raised above the ground, uh, maybe just a few inches or so, but we levitated above the above the ground and we were moving toward this thing at a pretty fast speed and uh, we were approaching it so fast that I was bracing for impact because I thought we were going to hit it and uh, when we got up to about uh, 30 feet of the craft uh, from the craft we came back to rest on the road but the van wouldn't start and we're all sitting there panicking and everybody's talking all at once and we're yelling and we're panicking. And uh, so the, the drummer, he was sitting in the passenger seat. He suddenly became the voice of reason. And he turned around and he said, everybody just shut up. He said, if we stay low, we don't say anything. We don't talk. We stay quiet, stay low. Maybe they'll leave us alone. And uh, so that, <laughs> That was the only plan we had, and so we decided to do that. So we're sitting very quietly in the back, and I was terrified. Everybody was terrified because we didn't know what was happening to us. And Steve, uh, I have to interrupt you for just a second. I'm so sorry, but we need to take a very quick station break. Sure. So hold on while I just shout out some call signs. Okay. I want to let everyone know that you're watching The Light Gate. I'm your host, Preston Dennett. My lovely co-host is Dolly Safran. Our guest tonight is Steve Boucher. And we are very happy to be streaming live on the United Public Radio Network at 107.7 FM in the beautiful city of New Orleans. Also the UFO Paranormal Radio Network at 105.3. We are also very happy to be on Roku as well. YouTube and Facebook. And this is episode 25. So we're finally getting our sea legs with this show. And yeah, super excited to have you on, Steve. And so sorry to interrupt because this is, I know, going to be an amazing story. But you were describing how you're all sitting there laying low. Yeah. And trying to keep calm. <laughs> and uh, then I heard uh, um, the drummer said, oh, no. And I said, where is it? He said, they're getting out. And I said, I want to see. And he said, no, stay stay low in the back. And, you know. And I said, what do they look like? And he said, they're just little guys. And I said, little guys? And uh, I was afraid we were going to get into a, a skirmish with these beings. So I... Uh, I grabbed the mic stand for uh, uh, to use as a weapon if if they happen to get in, and um, yeah, that's basically what they look like. What they look like, and um, so anyway, uh, we could hear them around the van, and they were trying the the doors. We could hear them trying the doors. And uh, one of them went by the uh, the one 
window that we had in the back. And I saw the side of his head like, uh, and because their eyes kind of curve up around the sides of their head, they've got a greater peripheral vision than we do. And so as he went by, he was looking into the van and it surprised me. And I said, did you see that? And everybody went, shh. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but did you see that? And Anne-Marie said, yes, I saw it. And um, so the hitchhiker, he was sitting in the corner in the back of the van. And he just suddenly started looking around at us. And then he reached over and he opened the back door of the van and pushed the door open. And there were three gray beings there uh, in single file uh, facing us. And one of them came right up into, into the van. And I grabbed the mic stand. I was going to whack him with this thing, you know, but I couldn't move. I was paralyzed. And uh, then I could hear him in my head. When I looked at his eyes, I could hear him speaking to me. And he said, we're sorry we had to temporarily paralyze you because you were thinking violent thoughts. And I was concerned about my safety and the safety of my crew. And he said, but we don't intend to hurt you or harm you in any way. Uh, we need to run some tests. So I'd like to take uh, three of you uh, to the ship and we'll run the tests quickly and and you will bring you back and you can be on your way. And um, so he looked at the bass player and he said, I'd like to take you. And then he looked at the hitchhiker and he said, and you? And then he looked at me. And when he looked at me, I looked at the floor. I didn't want to look at his eyes because <laughs> that's how I could hear him. And uh, I could only look at the floor for so long. Finally, I looked back up at him and he was staring right at me and he said, and you. So uh, he wow. said, would you, would you follow me, please? And he turned around and he started to go back out. And he was height-wise, he cleared the ceiling of, of the van. This is a regular stop stock van it had no um, cap on it or anything and, um, and he cleared the ceiling by about three or four inches so that'll give you an idea how tall he was and um, as he was leaving his foot got stuck in the uh, snare drum stand and it fell over and the snare drum rolled out the back of the van and one of the uh, beings picked it up right away and he started looking at it. And uh, when I got out, uh, uh, I came face to face with this being. And he was like about a, a foot away from me. And I heard in my mind, oh my God, are you ever ugly? And I don't know if that was me thinking that about him or him thinking that about me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, um, he 
he handed the drum to the leader and the leader said, is this yours? And I said, no. And he said, who does it belong to? And I said, well, it belongs to the drummer. Uh, it belongs to him. And I pointed to the drummer in the passenger seat. And the leader said to the other being, go and get him. And so he went around to the side of the van. He came back with the drummer. Now the drummer was one of the ones with us as well. So there were four of us. The, um, the guitarist and his girlfriend remained in the van. They didn't come with us, but uh, he handed the drum to the drummer and he said, is this okay? Uh, is it damaged? And he said, no, it seems to be okay. And he laid it on the floor of the van. And I had a bag with my instruments, my recorders in, in it. It was like a burlap bag with a drawstring that I used to keep them in. And uh, I wasn't going to leave it behind in the van. I decided to bring it with me. So uh, uh, I took it with me and he made us all line up along the side of the van. And he told us all to turn to the left and face the back of the person in front of you. So we did that and there were four of us and one of the beings, the leader went into the front and the other two, I guess, were in behind us. And uh, so we were like in a, a conga line sort of. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said, we're going on the ship. He said, uh, we're going to go on all as one unit, all together as one unit. And he said, when we start to move, don't look to the left or the right. Keep facing straight ahead. Huh. And, and when we go into the ship, he said, don't touch the hull. And so anyway, I, I was a real disobedient kid. I, I had to test everything, you know. And so I, <laughs> I, we started moving all together and our feet weren't touching the ground anymore. We were off the ground and moving in a straight line. And I looked to the left and we stopped. So I looked straight ahead again and we started going. And I said, oh, that's how it works. And I turned to the right and we stopped again. And when I faced forward, we kept going. And we approached the uh, opening to the, the craft. It was on the right and uh, we turned all together and kind of turned on an angle to go up into the opening and um, there were steps there i remember them as corrugated metal steps but uh, we didn't walk on the steps we floated and um, I could see the black leather jacket of the drummer in front of me. And he was a pretty tall guy. And he banged his head on the uh, oh, no. going in. Like, <laughs> wow. you know, and he, he said, oh, crap. And uh, the leader immediately turned around and said, are you okay? And he said, yeah, I'm okay. But he, he wasn't happy at all. You could see he didn't want to be with us. 
And um, I took it as an opportunity to, I wanted to touch the UFO to see if it was what it felt like. And so I, with my ring finger of my left hand, I just gently grazed the surface of it. And it felt like metal, like aluminum, and it didn't feel uh, unusual in any way. And uh, it turned out that a couple of weeks later, I later I got a huge planter's wart on that finger, and it took me weeks to get rid of it. I was putting free zone on it every day, and it, <laughs> wow. it took ages to go away. But anyway, so when we went into the ship they immediately separated all of us and um, there was one being for each each of us and um, the drummer uh, the being he was talking to was kind of arguing with them and what they wanted us to do was to remove all our clothing and put it in a pile on the floor and they wanted to do some tests on us or something and he was refusing he said no i am not gonna do that and he argued for for a little while and finally the being gave up and kind of patted him on the shoulder and said it's okay i respect your decision but will you wait here for the others and he said yes so he stood there with this being and waited and meanwhile uh the other beings had brought us over to these benches that were curved. They followed the contour of the ship. And um, we sat down on these benches and started to disrobe. And I noticed the hitchhiker, um, when I first remembered this, I didn't remember who it was. But uh, he had long underwear on. And... Um, I thought it was kind of unusual. It was, it was cold out. It was getting close to winter. Uh, in fact, at, at the party we played at, there was a Christmas tree already. And um, so uh, the one being that I had was, was the leader. And I came to know him as Rigel. That's the name I call him. But... Uh, he brought me over to this other area of the ship and there was a countertop with cupboards and he had me sit on this countertop and I was sitting there in my underwear and uh, he went over to talk to one of the other beings that had a metallic tray and there was a something on it wrapped in a towel and he unrolled the towel and there was all these instruments that looked like dental instruments or surgical instruments on it <laughs> and i was thinking to myself i've got to get something because <laughs> nobody's going to believe me i've got to get something like an artifact or something and uh, there was nothing around that was loose that i could take so my hand came to rest on the cupboard under the uh, countertop I was sitting on. And I felt the knob of this cupboard. And I thought, I wonder if this thing unscrews. 
So I started unscrewing it and sure enough, it was getting looser and it came off in my hand and I didn't know what I was going to do with it uh, because I didn't have any pockets to put it in or anything. So (laughs) well, maybe I can stash it under my armpit or something. (laughs) But anyway, uh, I was holding it in my hand and the leader came back to me and he said, we're ready to do the test now. And he looked at me and he kind of tilted his head and he said, what have you got? And I said, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. And he said, you took something. And I realized that he could see every thought that I was thinking and you can't hide anything from these guys. So I held it out. I opened my hand and he took the knob out of my hand and he looked at it and he said, you can't keep this. And the other being that had the tray with the, the instruments on it said, why not let him keep it? What harm can it do? And he looked at the other being and he said, we're not supposed to let them keep anything. Wow. And that told me that they were working under some kind of strict protocols. Yep. You know? And um, so he, <laughs> yeah. he brought like a gurney over to me and I don't know if it was on wheels or what, but he pushed it over to me and he said, can you slide off the countertop onto this and lay down? And I said, yeah. So I, I slid off and I got onto the gurney and uh, I believe it had like a, a thin mattress layer on it, but I can't be absolutely sure. So I was laying on this thing. And uh, uh, at one point I sat up because they brought the instruments over to me. And there was one instrument in particular that looked uh, strange to me. It was kind of rectangular shaped and black. And it reminded me of the handheld piece from a contemporary phone and he picked this thing up and he said I'm going to show you how this works and uh, he held out his arm and he took this thing and shone it on his arm Mm. he turned it on and it shone like a green light on his arm and wherever this green light landed I could see his skeletal structure underneath it under the skin and um, he said, now I'd like to try it on you. And I said, is it going to hurt? And he said, no, it's not going to hurt, but it might tingle a little bit. And he said, can you hold your arm out, please? So I held my arm out and uh, he shone the light on my arm. And I was surprised that not only could I see the bones, but I could see the muscles and I could see the veins and the arteries and I could even see my heartbeat pulsing. And uh, so I was really surprised at this thing. I'd never seen anything like that before. And he said, now we want to use it to take a look in your stomach. And he said, can you you lay back? And so I laid back down and uh, he wheeled me over to this place where above me, there was like a big circular wheel. It looked like concentric circles. 
and uh, I don't know if it was a helix or if they were separate concentric circles. But this thing, it was a light, and it's, when it came on, it started pulsing toward the center, and it was drawing my attention to the center. And I kept staring at it, and I started to feel myself getting really tired. And uh, I said, I don't want to look at that thing anymore. And he said, no, look at it. Look right into the center. He said, it's very important. So I stared into the center of it, and uh, next thing I know, I was out like a light. I was unconscious. And when I woke up again, I don't know how long I was out, but uh, they were rolling up the instruments in the in the towel. And uh, he said, I'm going to take you back to the bench and you can put your clothes on and uh, we're done with the testing. So I went back to the bench and I started putting my clothes on. I had my bag of recorders and uh, uh, sitting on top and, and him and the other being came over to us while we were getting dressed and the drummer was still standing at the doorway with the other being fully clothed and so uh, he said we have a few minutes now if there's any questions you want to ask us now is the time and uh, so I started thinking gee what am I going to ask them and uh, one of the guys asked, uh, where are you from? And he said, do you know the stars at all? And we said, well, not really. And he showed us the star map on the wall. And he said, well, it probably won't mean anything to you, but we're from this area here. And I can't be sure, but I think he was pointing to uh, the constellation of Orion and specific, specifically the, the three stars on the belt of Orion. Um, wow, that co coincides with Dolly's story as well. <laughs> That's yeah. I hear that a lot. So, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. I, go on. <laughs> this is fascinating. So the next guy, uh, the bass player, he said, do you have any basses around here? And he said, yes, uh, we have one right out here. And he pointed through the porthole to Lake Ontario. And uh, then he came to me. And uh, they both looked at me like they were waiting for my question. And I said, what is the true religion on earth? And they both kind of looked at each other surprised by my question. And uh, the leader said, why would you ask something like that? And I said, well, you guys are obviously a lot more advanced than we are uh, socially and technologically and probably spiritually as well. So if anybody would know what the true religion on earth is, it would be you guys. And he looked at the other being and uh, he said, uh, there is no true religion on earth. And he said, that's the end of the questions. And I, <laughs> I said, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. I said, you can't just leave me hanging like that. You know, like, 
what do you mean there's no true religion on earth? And he said, I'm sorry, the questions are over. We probably told you too much already. And uh, he wouldn't answer anything else after that. And so we were all dressed and we walked back over to where the drummer was. And, and the guys started leaving. And this time they were walking down the steps uh, to the outside. And I was the last person in the lineup and uh, it was my turn to go. And he put his hand on my shoulder the leader and he stopped me and he said wait a minute he said i'd like to talk to you a little more wow. and at that point i blacked out again oh. it was like i lost my consciousness and the next thing i remember i was standing on the ground outside the ship looking at him up in the doorway of the ship and he was kind of silhouetted in the doorway with this dull light behind him and I could see these big black eyes staring at me. And he was telling me something. And uh, I started becoming conscious. And I was trying to remember what he was telling me. Because uh, it was like a beautiful story of some sort. And uh, almost like when you have a beautiful dream and you're trying to remember it. And it's drifting away and drifting away can't remember what you dreamt about it was kind of like that and uh, I felt this tremendous love coming from him like it was like a wave of love that I've never felt from a, a woman or from anybody in my life like that and um, it was cold outside and my face was itching so I went to scratch my cheeks like that and they were soaking wet. And I realized that I'd been crying. You know, he told me something that really moved me. And it had me crying. And so I was trying really hard to remember what he told me. And he could see I was struggling with this. So he came down and walked up to me. And uh, he said, wasn't there something you wanted to show me? And I said, what? And he said, there was something you wanted to show me. And then I realized that, that it was my recorders. I'd been thinking that earlier, that if I get a chance, I'm going to show him these things. And it was a distraction technique that he used to stop me from trying to remember what it was he told me. But the last thing I could remember was he said, and you'll be a great help to your family and friends in the future. But uh, he gave me some kind of a mission, but I don't know what it was. I don't remember it. Uh, so he distracted me by asking me about my recorders. And I took, uh, I took them out and uh, showed them to him. And... Um, I played a little bit for him. And then I handed it to him. <laughs> and he took it and he did something really strange that I never expected him to do. I thought he was going to 
hold it up to his mouth to try to play it. And it was headed that way, but instead of putting it in his mouth, he held it up to his nostrils and he blew into it and he got a sound out of it. And I thought, that's really weird. Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he put it to his mouth to play? And I found out later on uh, from the guys in Q-Form when they uh, uh, worked on my case, they had shown me um, uh, a, a manual that they had of uh, alien autopsy. And it was of these gray aliens. Uh, and it was written by uh, Dr. Leonard Stringfield. And uh, it said that they found out that this being didn't have any uh, uh, digestive system like we had. The, the mouth was basically a pocket that stopped here. And uh, uh, they had one organ that did the job of the liver and the lungs and the heart. And um, the mouth wasn't connected. They had no digestive system like we know. So they couldn't breathe through their mouth. They could only breathe through their nose. And that explained to me why he held the recorder up to his nostrils instead of his mouth. Yeah, you're describing perfectly an AI. They, yeah. um, they're absolutely, they're biological. And okay. that's how they operate. And um, that's perfect description of them. Uh, yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, I decided to give him one of the small recorders, like the kind that the kids play, you know, it was... A soprano, yeah, <laughs> and uh, I just decided to, to give it to him. Yeah. And I said, Would you like this as a souvenir? And I held it out to him, and he took it out of my hand. And he said, uh, What is the souvenir? And I said, Something to remember me by. It's a gift. And he said, That would be fine. And he put it on his belt and it just stuck there like like it was magnetized, but there's no metal in it. And uh, I couldn't understand why it was sticking to his belt. And uh, mm -hmm. I started thinking to myself, gee, I hope I can get another one of those little recorders because I really like the sound of it. And immediately he took it off his belt and said, would you like it back? And he handed it back to me. And I said, no, no. I said, uh, you keep it. I said, I want you to have it. He said, okay. And he put it back on his belt. But I realized then in the end he was reading my mind. He could tell exactly what I was thinking. And he said to me, uh, um, Actually, it's probably in some alien museum somewhere up in <laughs> some other. No, the pilot of the craft probably took it. Yeah. I'm not kidding. <laughs> well, anyway, he said, would you like me to take you back to your vehicle? Yeah. And I said, no, that's okay. I said, am I going to see you again? He said, oh, yes, you'll see us again. 
And so I walked away from them and uh, I felt like I belonged with them. I, like, it was a really strange feeling, emotion I was feeling. So I went back to the, the van and the back doors were open. And uh, I climbed in and as I was climbing in, I noticed everybody inside was like frozen in it, what looked like a state of suspended animation. And as soon as I climbed in, they all came to life immediately. And the drummer was saying something. He said, uh, he said, we've all agreed on something. And he said, we need you to agree to this too. And I said, what's that? He said, we are not going to tell anybody about what happened here. <laughs> and I said, no way, no way. I said, people have got to know this stuff is going on. And he said, no, we are not going to tell anybody. And if you tell anybody, we're just going to deny it and you'll look like a fool. And I was really unhappy. I, I was angry at them for taking that stand, you know. And uh, I noticed something else. The hitchhiker wasn't there. Well, I'm curious about this part. <laughs> yeah, he disappeared. And I was wondering where he was. I thought, you know, it's a cold night and that's a long walk to St. Catharines from, from here, you know. So I was kind of worried about him. And um, anyway, we closed the doors and we left and started heading back to St. Catharines. And all the way there, I kept hearing them in my head going, you're going to forget this. You're going to forget all about this. And I was having a mental argument with them in the back of the van. Going, no, I am not going to forget this. I'm going to remember this all my life. And uh, when they got me home, um, my parents were asleep. I had a key and I let myself in. I went into the kitchen and... Uh, made myself a sandwich and I took out a pencil and paper and I wrote down everything that happened that I could remember in point form on this paper. And I took the paper, tore it off and I put it in my top dresser drawer and went to bed. And the next morning the paper had disappeared. Mm. And, um, I found it again later on because I have it now. I have it in a, there's a little briefcase that I keep the uh, Q foreign manual and the MUFON uh, manual in there. And this little piece of paper with the, uh, with the uh, events that happened to me that night. So. What year was this? that this instance what happened that year well what year? sometime around uh, 1972 or 73 somewhere around okay. right and um anyway uh fast forward to the future i don't know how much time we have left but we still I, uh, 20 minutes or so okay i um I went to the uh, Alien Cosmic Expo 
in it was in Brantford at that time. They moved it to Toronto later on, but uh, I went there and uh, they had an experiencers group and where you could get up on the stage and describe your experience. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and I did that. I got up on the stage and I started to describe my experience. And Grant Cameron was in the audience. There was about maybe 200 people or so. And Grant came up to me. Uh, they stopped me about halfway through my story. They had to break for lunch. But I got to tell the rest of it later. And uh, Grant came up to me during the break and he said, I know that story. And I said, how could you know that story? I've never told it to anybody. Uh, and he said, I remember it. He said, when Qforn uh, did the investigation on your case and they had given you a pseudonym of Jack T. And he said, I called them and I tried to get a hold of them uh, to find out what your real name was. I wanted to come and talk to you because he says, I'm doing research on uh, bands that have had uh, UFO experiences. There's a lot of them too. Yeah. <laughs> you seem to love musicians. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so he said, I know your story. He says, I've been looking for you for years. And that was the beginning of my friendship with Grant Cameron. Same. And he was the one that uh, inspired me to write the book. He kept telling me, you've got to write a book about these experiences. And, yeah. and uh, so I said, okay, I'll write a book. And it took me about three years to, to write it um, because I got sick during it and uh, had to postpone it for a little bit and <clears throat> and then I went back to it and I proofread it and I fixed it all up and, and I did like a a list of books that uh, had uh, similar incidents at the end of it and um Grant's publishing company published it for me, uh, Desta Barnaby. Uh, she read it over and she's done a lot of Grant's books and books for other people like Paula Harris. And uh, uh, so they, they published my book for me on Amazon. And uh, it's been doing pretty good. I've been getting a lot of... Uh, positive feedback on it and uh, every month they deposit my royalties into my bank account and so I may write another one I don't know I'm, at this point I don't think I will but uh, there's always a possibility so uh, I got somebody on Facebook approached me a guy named Alex, and he said, I believe that I was the hitchhiker that uh, you guys picked up that night. And uh, 
at first I was kind of dubious. But then I said, uh, were you wearing long underwear that night? And he said, yes. He said, this friend of mine was supposed to take me home. And uh, he was supposed to meet me at the party and he never showed up. And he told me to wear long underwear because there was going to be a bonfire out in the backyard. And uh, so that answered my question of who was wearing the long underwear that night. The second thing I asked him is, what happened to you? Where did you go? And he said, uh, the ETs took me home. They, mm -hmm. drove, they dropped me off at my house. And wow. he said, it uh, woke a lot of my neighbors, like, you know, because they had these bright lights and a lot of the neighbors uh, uh, could see this thing. And the next next day he got a visit from the men in black. Mm. He said they came to his house and he said they had a, a car that was like a big Cadillac and it was black. And he said it had no logo on it, no manufacturer's logo. And the windows were darkened out on it. And they threatened him and his dad because his dad had been telling everybody, oh, my son was abducted by a UFO and all this. And so they told him, him to shut up about it. Don't talk about it. Hmm. And um, he's had other experiences as well. So when he contacted me on Facebook, uh, I questioned him about a lot of stuff because I wanted to make sure that it was really him. And he said, uh, he told me he'd been trying to pick up Anne-Marie and she was dating the guitarist and he was mad at me. And he said, so I didn't go home with you guys. I went with the beings instead and they dropped me off. And he said, I think they took me to their base. And uh, so anyway, when he started describing the conversation and that he was trying to pick up Anne-Marie, I had never told anybody that because I didn't remember it myself. But when he started telling me, I was remembering. Everything he told me happened in the van. I remembered. Have and you met him? Hmm? Have you met him since then? No. Talk to him no. He wouldn't meet me. I tried to get him to meet me. In fact, I, I was hoping I could get him to uh, come on a podcast with Grant Cameron and explain what happened because he was the only uh, viable source that could back up my story, you know? And uh, he disappeared. But when I had these conversations with him on Facebook, I created a word file and I copied and pasted all the dialogue of our conversations in this word file. And I'm so glad I did that now because I had a feeling he was going to disappear. And when I looked for him again, there were uh, several blank profiles with that name, no picture, no um, uh, no wall, uh, 
no yeah. comments, no friends list, nothing. It was just a profile made with that name. Uh, and it had the, the typical Facebook icon for a, a male. That's all. <laughs> and um, I never got a hold of him again. I tried and tried. Yeah. Couldn't find Sometimes it. people work for the government and their contactees and uh, they get in a lot of trouble for that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I figured maybe there was a, an NDE involved, like a non disclosure agreement. NDA, yeah. 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 And the other thing I kind of wondered about is maybe he worked in the uh, underground tunnels. There's a uh, there's a whole world down there under the surface of the earth and these tunnels and there are uh, underground cities and things like that from what I'm learning about. Yep. Uh, but he never contacted me again. So mm -hmm. uh, that was the end of that. Mm -hmm. Well, here's a question I'd like to pop up from one of the people in chat, which I'm also curious about. Okay. regarding your father this is from janice she's asking what's your dad's occupation and he had experiences before when he was young because this is something that is often generational mm -hmm. i believe that it was generational i believe he had other experiences but he wouldn't talk to me about it oh. uh, but i know he had some other experiences that he wasn't telling me about uh, he was a millwright by trade. Uh, started out as a welder, and then he got his millwright ticket. He worked on machinery. And um, when I asked him one day if he remembers what they showed him on the ship, uh, he said, they showed me a bunch of images of inventions throughout history of old inventions coming up to new technology. And he said it was like a history lesson of all the yeah. uh, wow. inventions. That's fascinating. And I think they picked him specifically for that reason, because he was into mechanical things and he was a millwright. You know? Cool. That's one of the things I noticed because I was doing analysis of who's getting contacted and there are a lot of musicians and artists, mm -hmm. inventors as well, environmentalists, yeah. uh, social workers, uh, human rights activists, people who are doing good work. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, a lot of left-handed people are creative people. They're artists. Very much so. Yeah. We use a different, that way. Yeah. Uh, different half of the brain than um, other people. Use. So Christopher Harmon is asking, did you ever put on any albums of your music? Uh, well, I did a CD of my own music, but it never went anywhere. I probably got a couple of copies of it kicking around here somewhere, but uh, it never, I never got it published by a, a, a regular publisher. And also uh, I've had a couple of different bands since then and we've done covers of other people's material uh, oh, what cool. type of music do you personally like to play uh oh i like all kinds of music uh, 
uh, I like um, I like meditation music. I listen to that a lot. Uh, I like a lot of bands like uh, I was big on Genesis. I went Super Tramp, uh, Foreigner. You know, uh, a lot of these bands I saw when I was younger. April Wine. Um, but I've played with uh, uh, pianists. The uh, recorder goes well with piano. Mm -hmm. And I've played with guitarists, a lot of different guitarists. Um, the uh, disadvantage to playing a recorder is that they don't play chords. They can only play melodies. Melodies, yeah. And um, so I have to play with other musicians, like a guitarist or, or yeah. a pianist. And uh, the advantage is that you learn a heck of a lot of songs because they all have a different repertoire. Right. And so it increased my repertoire of songs that I can play. I played with country western bands. I played with jazz bands. I played with... Um, do you have Walker. a good Celtic? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> totally love Celtic. Celtic music. <laughs> yeah, I love Celtic music. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So here's another question, which I think is pertinent. And this is from Rad Peanut. She's talking about how you can become very emotional after reciting or depressed. Or what was your emotional reaction to all of your experiences? How did it affect you? Well, it. Uh, it was buried in my subconscious uh, till about 1984 when I went to Manhattan and uh, met Bud Hopkins and uh, went under the hypnosis sessions there. And I asked uh, Dr. Clamar to give me a post-hypnotic suggestion to help me remember all the incidents that happened to me but to remember them over the months at my own comfortable level. And she did that, and it worked. And I remembered a lot of incidents uh, that took place since then. But uh, I don't remember any happening after 1976. That's not to say that they didn't happen. It just means I didn't remember them. Uh, one thing Bud Hopkins told me was... Uh, once your case is investigated, they stop coming around, hmm. you know. And uh, he didn't seem to know why, but he said once your case is investigated, they don't come around anymore. And I think that's probably because uh, they like to work on a clandestine level um, with your subconscious. And um, they'll work with your conscious mind as well, but they make you forget that. They push it into the subconscious. Well, I have a serious question to ask you then. Since mm -hmm. you've come out and you're uh, out there and you're using your real name and you've written a book, yeah. do you feel like, you know, because you made the statement before that um, you have a mission or uh, something that you were supposed to be doing, you think right. maybe you're following that now? Oh, well, that brings up the question from 
Garo, and thank you for the really generous super chat. He says, in your book, you discuss the mission. Can you talk more about this? Um, well, I believe writing the book was part of the mission. But I also think that there's, uh, well, it might sound kind of cliche, but there's kind of a, a star seed light worker kind of mission where uh, I'm here to help earth ascend to the next level and to help people uh, to uh, find themselves spiritually, you know, yeah, right? yeah. so there's that part of it as well, but there could be another part to this mission that hasn't happened yet that I am not aware of yet. I agree with you. Yep. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Well, we're running down to our last few minutes here. We still have like three minutes or so. So is there anything else you want to add before we have to unfortunately yeah. say goodbye? Uh, well, um, I didn't quite finish the other question, but the way it affected me was uh, I had a massive uh, shift in my spiritual life. Um, I had grown up as a Christian. I left the church and wow. um, I, uh, I study a lot of the uh, ancient records and like the Enuma Elish, the um, Astrahasis, uh, the uh, Gnostic material. I read a lot of this, uh, these books and um, me too. I'm right there with you. <laughs> yeah. And it has uh, improved my spiritual life tremendously. And I don't follow any religion anymore. Uh, now I believe in uh, unity consciousness, that we're all connected, that we're all one. And um, I have a question for you then. Mm -hmm. You just led me right Make to it. Make it quick, Dolly. We're in our last and, you know, <laughs> um, Have you ever heard them say, you are us, we are you, we are one? Uh, there's a phrase that sticks in my mind. Uh, we are all one in the one that is all. There you go. Close enough. Oh. That's it. Definitely. Yeah. So well, I, I have a, uh, a group on Facebook that you can contact me there. It's named after my book. It's called Beyond the Extraterrestrial Firewall. And my book is available on Amazon. I had a website, but uh, I got rid of it. I'm going to eventually start a new one. Awesome. Do that soon. I have a feeling it's going to uptick on you. Yeah. And with that note, I'm going to say goodnight to everybody. This has been The Light Gate. We love you. We're definitely going to be asking you to come back again and talk with us because it's a lot more than come there. And uh, we were coming to you tonight from the beautiful city of New Orleans at the United Public Radio Network at 107.7 FM and the U UFO uh, Paranormal Radio Network at 105.3 FM. Everybody have a great week. We'll see you next Monday. Keep smiling and be happy. Night-night. <laughs> Bye now.